Welcome to Grace to All. I'm your host, Paul Gray. You've probably used the word grace, sang Amazing Grace, or said grace at a meal. But did you know that God's grace is way better than we can even imagine, and that you and all people already have an abundant supply of God's unlimited amazing grace? Today, we're going to hear the truth about God's amazing grace to all people. So, sit back, relax, and prepare to be inspired and awakened to the amazing treasures that you already possess. This is truth that you can handle. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to today's version of Grace to All with Paul Gray. I want you to think back with me, if you would, oh, 400 years or so. Obviously, we can't think back that far because we weren't here then. But think about that time period, like the early 1600s. What do we have today that we didn't have then? Well, a whole lot of things. Uh, (laughs) A whole lot of things. But for one thing, we don't have the Internet, of course. And on the Internet, we're now able to see and read and get copies of things that people just didn't have available then, because maybe there was only one copy of a book or a writing in some uh, ancient library tucked away somewhere in uh, Egypt or Israel or Persia or whatever the countries uh, were at that time. And nobody else in the world knew that they existed or had access to them. That's especially important in us being able to figure out what language meant, what words meant, not only in that time period, four to five hundred years ago, but in all the time period before that. For example, the Bible, the New Testament, was written in Koinonia Greek and in Aramaic, which was the language that Jesus spoke. Well, the translators of the King James Bible, the second English translation that was ever done in, around in the early 1600s, they had access to very few documents that told what the ancient Greek words actually meant. They didn't have access to legal documents and letters and uh things that were written like newsworthy things in whatever form that they had then. They had access to very few of those. So they literally had to guess at what many words meant. So the King James was uh, put together by King James, who was the king of England then, and he hired about 70 people who knew Greek and Hebrew to write that Bible, of course, with a bias, which was uh, his own bias and theirs. They'd broken away from the Catholic Church. And because that was uh, virtually the earliest English Bible and the one that was first one that was printed in mass copies, that became the standard for many years, and many of our fairly recent translations, like within the last 150 years or so, are based off of translation that came through the King James people. So, that's not a knock on that Bible. I'm not saying they intentionally did anything wrong or tried to lead people astray. They just didn't have the knowledge that we have today. For example, you know, a scientist who would be maybe studying the atmosphere or studying insects or a medical biologist studying blood types and internal organs and stuff like that. They had no concept in the 1600s of what things were. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have the basis of research and all kinds of testing and stuff like that. So 
all that is to say that today we have a plethora of information available to help us understand things from the past that we didn't have 50 years ago, 100 years ago, especially 400 years ago. So today we're going to look at uh, today and next week. This is a two little two part series. We're going to look at a passage in Ephesians chapter five. And the second week, a week from now, we'll get to a a part that's unfortunately done tremendous damage to many people in the religious world. Today, we're going to set the stage for that. Uh, You'll learn from some things today as well as next week, too. Now, we've been learning that when we read the Bible, whatever translation it is, when we listen to a spiritual teacher, a religious teacher, When we read a book about spirituality or anything like that, we've been learning that we want to always use Christ's filter, a Christocentric filter, because Jesus was God. He's the only person who came directly from God, who knew God face to face. He was God. He was the exact representation of God, and he was the only human being who could show us and tell us what God is really like. And of course, he did. So anytime we read something, we want to see, well, does it line up with who Jesus was and who the Holy Spirit of Christ in us now is telling us God was? We want to always see if things line up with the truth that Jesus revealed, that God is perfect, never-ending, agape love for all people. Agape love is selfless, self-giving, full of grace. Does it line up with the truth that Jesus said that God is pure light with absolutely no trace of darkness? Is it something that seems dark? That should raise red flags. When we read scripture or listen to a teacher, we want to look at, does it fit with God's ultimate goal, which is the restoration of all people to our original genesis, our original mindset, which is oneness and union with God? We want to always look at, are we reading from the Old Covenant, which is the Jewish scripture commonly called the Old Testament, which goes up through the time of Jesus' finished work at the cross? Almost all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, well, almost all of Matthew, Mark, and and Luke are under the Old Covenant. Is it under that, or is it under the New Covenant that Jesus inaugurated at his finished work at the cross? Because the Old Covenant wasn't written to us. We can learn from it, but it wasn't written to us. We always want to look at the understanding of something we read or hear. Is it under grace or is it under law? Because we're not under law. We never have been. Now, if something doesn't fit, doesn't seem right, seems dark, or causes an uneasy feeling in us, if it doesn't jibe with the things that I just said, let's not try to make it fit. Let's not try to say, oh, well, God's ways are higher than ours, so this seems like God is really bad, but it can't be because he's good, so uh, uh, it must be true. So, you know, <laughs> for too long, religion has tried to do that. Let's not try to make it fit. Let's look at some possibilities. Could be an incorrect translation. And since we have hundreds of translations today and none of them agree with each other, they can't all be right, can they? Could be that something was added or subtracted by scribes through the years. You know, the printing press wasn't invented until hundreds of years after Jesus' time. So things were copied down by individual scribes and 
people make errors <laughs> in what they do. And sometimes, and we know this now because of the time that's passed and the other documents that we've seen and uh, corresponding things in secular writings, we know that there have been scribes who have changed things, added or deleted words, changed meanings of words because they had a particular theological bent in the tradition that they'd grown up in. It could be that there's just something we don't yet understand. So anytime we read the Bible, hear a message from somebody, read something, watch a video or whatever, we want to always have that mindset, that filter of Christ, and we want to always ask the Holy Spirit of Christ in us to explain what we're hearing. And if we don't hear something from the Holy Spirit and it still seems like something is wrong, we want to just set that aside until the Holy Spirit does reveal something to us. We don't have to just blindly say, well, that's in the King James Version, or that's in the Bible. The Bible says that it must be true, even when our own common sense shows us, no, that can't be true. So we want to wait until the Holy Spirit does reveal something to us. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will do that to us directly. Many times it's through someone else, someone who's gifted in language and research, somebody who's done a lot of study, who's had the time and the interest and the inclination to do that, which we're going to see a little bit today. I want you to see the source, which is a New Testament scripture by Dr. A. Nyland, L-Y-L-A-N-D, and A stands for Anne, by Dr. Anne Nyland. I want to read what she writes about this. This is very new, just within the last 10 years or so, and it's just now gaining wide traction. She's a Greek scholar, university teacher from Australia, who spent her life studying these things and studying things that have recently come out. Here's what uh, is written about it. The Source New Testament has extensive notes on Greek word meaning. It contains abundant and detailed documentation for the meaning of hundreds of Greek words which appear in the New Testament. The source is the only New Testament translation based on word meaning evidence from the recently discovered papyri and inscriptions. Papyri comes from the papyrus tree, probably not saying that right, where uh, they made paper uh, from those trees, you know, 2,000 years ago. That's what documents were written on. And this goes on to say, for centuries, translators had to guess the meaning of these words. After 1976, very recent, huge numbers of papyri and inscriptions were discovered containing these New Testament words in everyday documentation, other things written than the Bible, thus revealing what the words actually meant. The source is the only New Testament translation by a classical Greek scholar rather than a theologian, and it's the only one that's not financed or translated by a committee from a specific denomination with a specific theological bent. Now, there are very good translations out now. The Mirror Translation, the Passion Translation, you know, those are those are both recent, like within the last 10 years or so, and they're both ongoing. The, the Passion New Testament is finished, and parts of the Old Testament, the Mirror, the New Testament is not quite yet finished yet. Uh, but those are both by theologians and have been financed, certainly in part, by donations from people with a like-minded bent to the theology that they have. So having said that, 
I'm going to show you some things from the source and from some other things about this particular passage in Ephesians. We're going to start out by looking at Ephesians 5, verse 20 from the King James Version. Here's what this verse says, Ephesians 5, 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the first thing I notice when I see that is it's an incomplete sentence. What does that mean? An incomplete sentence. Now, you probably know, I'm sure, that when the Bible was written, both in Hebrew and Greek, there were no punctuation marks. There were no paragraphs. There were no sentence. There were no periods at the end of sentences. There were no page breaks or anything like that. So all of that has been added by translators and publishers since then. So what would it mean as an incomplete sentence, and why would it be an incomplete sentence? Well, we're going to look at that. Now, I realize some of you might think, oh, man, you're talking about Greek and Hebrew and that kind of stuff, and what possible meaning does it have for me today? Well, I hope you'll see. I'm not a Greek scholar. I'm a plain, ordinary human being from the Ozarks in Missouri, a meat and potatoes guy who's very practical, application-oriented. Having said that, I want to know that the stuff that I believe, I I want to know what it's based on. Is it based on truth or not? All right, let's look at, at just this one verse. It says, giving thanks always for all things unto God. Are we to give thanks for all things? How about COVID-19? How about uh, riots and mayhem and burning of buildings and taking people's lives and causing people to lose their livelihood? Are we to give thanks for those things? Now, we do know that God will work all things out for the good. But this verse says, give thanks always for all things. Hmm. Let's look at a couple of different translations. Let's look at Ephesians 5.20. And these two translations are virtually, virtually the same. The Passion Translation and the Source, which I just showed you. They both translate it this way. Always give thanks to Father God for every person he brings into your life in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's different, isn't it? Always give thanks to God for every person he brings into your life as opposed to give thanks for all things. Now, Brian Simmons, the translator of the Passion Translation, has a footnote on that verse, and he says this. He says, the Greek text is ambiguous. It can mean give thanks for all things or for all people. But, he says, the Aramaic, which is the language Jesus spoke, and there is an Aramaic version of the Bible, he says it's quite specific. It says give thanks for all people. Assuming that's true, and I believe it is, what would that mean for you? That would mean giving thanks for somebody in your life, in your life now, or maybe from the past that certainly that's helped you and benefited you and loved you, but it also, all people, it would mean giving thanks for people in your life that may have been or are annoying or abrasive or hard to deal with, not always kind. I interviewed a fellow this week. You'll hear his three interviews that I have coming up in a few weeks. But he he had some tremendously bad experiences in his life with people that hurt him tremendously. But then later in his life, God showed him how those people in those instances were part of his journey 
that God had worked together to make him into the person that he is today, which is wonderful. So we can give thanks to people who have been hard to get along with, abrasive, maybe taking credit for what we've done at work or whatever. We can give thanks to God knowing that they are part of our life and that God is working all things to the good and knowing that, you know, they just, like Jesus prayed for the people who were crucified, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. So that's much different praying for people like that than giving thanks for, say, COVID-19. All right, the next verse, Ephesians 5.21, King James Version. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Again, that's an incomplete sentence. Where does that come from and, and what does it mean? Any red flags there when you read, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God? If we look at it through a Christ-centered view, that raises all kinds of red flags. Would you believe that the word submitting is not in any of the original text? We have thousands of copies of the Greek New Testament and Aramaic. Some are partial. Some are complete. We have literally thousands of fragments and copies of those dating back to within uh, less than 100 years of Jesus. In all of those different ones that have now been found in libraries and different places all over the, the ancient world, the word submitting is not in a single one. Hmm. Now, submitting yourselves to one another in the fear the Greek word fear is phobos, P-H-O-B-O-S. It can be translated fear, or it can be translated reverence for, based on the translator's prerogative. Fear of God or reverence of God. If you look at Jesus' life, is there anything to fear? <laughs> Not at all. Now, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. The original word there is Christ, Christos, C-H-R-I-S-T-O-S in the Greek. Not the word for God, Theos or Yahweh or whatever. Translators wouldn't translate the New Testament saying fear of Christ. So somewhere along the line, some translators changed the word Christ to God. You say, what's the big deal? Jesus was God, right? Well, they wouldn't say fear of Christ because there's never anything to give any indication of fear of Christ in his life or in the New Testament. So that whole verse, Ephesians 5.21, has been butchered. Translators added the word submit, which doesn't exist, changed Christ to God, and translated phobos as fear instead of reverence. A drastic difference. Now, the four Greek words that are in the most reliable original text, same with the Aramaic, are yourselves, another, reverence, and Christ. Those are the four words in the original text. Now, translators for any language generally have to add words when translating something to another language to help us understand what was really said. Here's how the Passion translates Ephesians 5.21. Out of your reverence for Christ, be supportive, and supportive is added, of each other in love. 
out of your reverence for Christ, be supportive of each other in love. Well, that's good. Now, look at the source, Ephesians 5.21. Be filled with the Spirit while you are supporting one another out of respect for the anointed one. That's what Christos means in Greek, the anointed one. Why would the source translator put be filled with the Spirit here? We're going to get to that next week in the next verse, Ephesians 5.22. It's going to help you see how one verse being mistranslated has done tremendous damage to women over the course of Christian religious history. So come back next week. Join me as we go through the rest of this passage in Ephesians 5 and hear the truth. This is truth that you can handle. Thanks, everybody. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Grace to All. For more about us, how we can serve you, and our special guest, please visit www.gracewithpaulgray.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode and to join our Facebook group, Grace to All, where you'll be inspired and awakened to more truth that you can handle.